we have a wonderful example of impermanence with a course which seemed so long when we first came here is already finished and that happens that feeling happens in every course that when one first comes it seems a long time that one has to stay and how is one ever going to last and then on the last day it seems like one just got here and this is the whole of life if one starts thinking maybe at age 20 I'm going to be 80 how am I going to last and at age 80 one looks back and thinks I just got here so that's why we need to live in every moment constantly being aware of this one moment now that we'll go back to our homes and different areas of the world one thing only is of interest do we want to continue our practice and can we integrate it into our daily life if we can't integrate it we can't do it it's strictly a matter of accommodation we have to accommodate that which we consider important I usually say to that that we seem to have time to eat three times a day we should have time to meditate twice a day if we that doesn't mean we have to give up eating (laughs) but it might mean that we have to give up an hour of sleep or an hour of TV or an hour of chit chat or whatever it is that occupies the extra time there isn't a person alive that doesn't have extra time it's impossible we wouldn't last without it and if we do work or do whatever we are doing without a moment's respite we'll very quickly feel burned out so if there's any normalcy about our life we have extra time another thing we might consider is about sleep most people die in bed (laughs) so it might be well worth getting up (laughs) (laughs) I can assure you I've often thought that over the years so and it helps even though it's with tongue in cheek it still helps we need to make a sort of an sort of schedule not something that we have to adhere to without fail 
then we are again sort of pushing ourselves and making rules and regulations which we might resist and reject. But if we have enough understanding about the importance of the meditation, we can accommodate it and make a sort of an um, regularity about it. The mind is very habit-prone. So if we go to the meditation habitually at the same time, and uh, which is done in all religious institutions, as you can see here, for instance, they go to prayer at the same time every day, at different times in the day, but the same different times every day. So it's very helpful to go for meditation at the same time every day. The mind gets used to it. And it is that time of day, and there is a pillow there, and the mind remembers, oh yeah, that's right, meditation. So it's also important to organize a place for it in one's own home. It doesn't have to be a whole room. If one doesn't have that, it can be a corner. A corner which is large enough to accommodate a mat and a pillow. And it might have some flowers or a picture or nothing or a Buddha statue or whatever may be uplifting to one's mind. Some people like to have absolute plain white walls. It's fine. Some like flowers, pot plants. Some like a Buddha statue. Some like uh, another kind of decoration. Whatever it is. Anything where the mind feels uplifted and at ease. And leave the pillow in that corner. We never take the pots out of the kitchen. We don't take the towels out of the bathroom. We don't take the chairs out of the dining room because that's where they belong. And when we go there, they're ready for us. The same with the meditation pillow. Put it where it belongs and keep it there. It also helps because in the morning, one doesn't have to run around the house trying to remember where one put it last night. Get yourself a timer if you haven't got one yet. And set it for the time that you want to meditate. Here, you waited for the little gong, or the church bells, or both. At home, if you haven't got a timer, you might sit there and meditate and meditate and meditate, And then the mind says, goodness, that must be an hour at least. (laughs) And then you get up and go to the kitchen, and it turns out to be ten minutes. And of course, you don't go back to the pillow. You make coffee instead. So that's not uh, very profitable. 
Make up your mind how long you're going to sit and sit. It, first of all, it's a lesson in discipline, self-discipline. But also, if you remember, I mentioned that every second of concentration is one second of purification. Even if, like somebody had in their question last night, can only concentrate for two minutes. So, all right, so there are two minutes of purification. And they start over again, have another two minutes, and another two minutes. And eventually there'll be three minutes. And then there'll be four. And there'll be five. And one day there might be 45. Who knows? So, any time that you decide to sit, Put the timer on and stay with it. If you're an absolute beginner and this is your first experience of meditation, do it for 30 minutes. Put your timer on for 30 minutes. And then enlarge upon those 30 minutes, maybe five minutes more every two weeks or something similar certainly more profitable than the other way around. They start with an hour and then five minutes left every two weeks. And by the time you come to the next meditation course, the remark at the bottom will be no meditation at all. So do it the other way around. Start with 30. And when you feel it's fine 30, I'll do 35, then do that. And then another five more. Or maybe if you want to do it slowly, do two minutes more. doesn't matter. A little more as time goes on. If you have been meditating for some time, one hour. And if you're in between, 45 minutes. It's entirely up to each person, as you know. These are just general guidelines. If there's somebody else in your home who meditates, it's extremely helpful to have the support system of another person to do it together. You can also encourage each other, like, come on, it's time to get up to meditate. Sometimes the one who gets that told to might be resentful. If you do it in the spirit that one should do it as being a noble friend, then it's all right. If one does it in the spirit of, if he doesn't go, I won't go either, it's not all right. <laughs> so just watch the motivation. It's very helpful and actually quite essential to come together with a group of meditators once a week, or if that's not possible, once every two weeks. Now, for those of you who live in Germany, we have groups in many of the cities, all listed in our newsletter. And if we haven't got one in your town or city, then you start one. Two people are a group. And so many of the people who have started a group with two people, have now got quite a regular attendance of 6, 8, 10, 20, 30, whatever it may be. 
those of you who live overseas in the other countries you might already have a group if you haven't join one if you can't find a group that does a meditation like you have learned it here join anyone don't argue sit and do it doesn't matter what other people do it's fine they're doing it nicely they're sitting quietly well that's of course a precondition that they're sitting quietly uh, it's fine but there are also groups that meditate like this in many places in the United States and particularly in San Diego I've been told but there's San Francisco's group uh, Seattle is a group so but it's a big country so it's uh, many places where there aren't so if there aren't and you can't find one start one Australians already get together and all of that is extremely important because we need the support system of noble friends and noble friends is something that the Buddha talked about at length and often particularly as an antidote for the hindrances now if you remember I explained the five hindrances I explained how the factors of meditation are antidotes for each hindrance how each hindrance also has its own specific remedy in daily life all five have also as their remedy noble friends and noble conversation that applies to all five hindrances in other words to everything that are blockages within us because these five hindrances if you remember are nothing but listings of topics everything that is a blockage falls under one of them like fear for instance isn't specifically mentioned but it falls under hate or ill will noble friends are those that also practice that practice spiritual growth spiritual development and have thoughts in their mind which are not strictly on the material mundane level these are the kind of friends that encourage us that remind us that may have had experiences which they can share with us and noble conversations are food for the mind we wouldn't eat anything which we know to be poisonous we wouldn't eat anything which we know to be dirty because we would be afraid that our bodies would become contaminated we should be far more afraid of contaminating our minds noble conversations 
and noble conversations come from noble friends and hardly ever from the media. Although once in a while they do show something which is all right. We saw a life story of Meister Eckhart on TV once, but that happens once a year maybe, or once every two years. But as a rule, the media are not particularly health food for the mind. And that's what we need. We need health food for the mind. Far more important than going to the health food shop. Don't misunderstand me. It's perfectly right to go there and buy whatever. But health food for the mind, that should be the top priority. And that's what a noble conversation is all about. It doesn't have to be philosophical. It doesn't have to be psychological. It doesn't have to be uh, tinged with a lot of knowledge. It has to be uplifting, coming from the heart, and meant to show the other person that we're talking to that we are their noble friend, concerned about their well-being, caring for them, and recognizing the fact that only our inner life will bring us happiness. How we do that and how they do that, it's entirely up to every person's capacity and ability. If we ask somebody how they're feeling, that may be the conversation of a noble friend if we can hear that the other one really wants to know and is concerned about our health. But if we say, how are you? Well, we know that's just a matter of saying something and we don't really care. So it's not so much what we are concerned with. It's a feeling that comes through. I usually call this the heart-to-heart conversation rather than the mind-to-mind. Mind-to-mind conversations are extremely tiring and most of the time unproductive. But heart-to-heart conversations about what our heart feels and how we feel for the other person or how we are feeling concerning the things that are going on, they can be very helpful for both. The meditation teacher is called a noble friend. In in our tradition, a noble friend is called a kalyanamitta in Pali, And the meditation teacher is considered to be one and acts as one. But obviously, it cannot always be personally around. So that we really need other noble friends who are practicing like us to help us to stay on the path. The world around us is concerned with everything else except a spiritual path. It's not easy to find a situation 
all people where spiritual path is top priority. It's very difficult. That difficulty includes monasteries. It's everywhere. And monasteries of every kind, every religion. Because the world at large is far more populated than that which is concerned with the spiritual path. So like by sheer volume, the influence of world and worldly concerns wins. And when we come home now, we might be totally convinced that we're going to meditate twice a day for the rest of our lives. It's quite, quite an honest conviction. And this for the rest of our lives might last six, seven, eight weeks, nine weeks, maybe even four months. But it's not a way to make a determination. To make a determination is I'll meditate tomorrow morning and I'll sit down and do it. And having finished with that, as the day goes on, to make a new determination, I'll meditate tonight. The rest of my life is daunting because people don't expect to die within a very a short time. They expect to be around, no matter how old they are, they expect to be around for a long time. So it's a daunting proposition, and one which people very often feel they can't cope with. So, the art of the possible. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow evening, one at a time. We can only do one meditation at a time anyway. So it's useless to think of it, what we're doing in 20 years. Now, for this one, if we can get together with others, it will bolster and support that determination. Reading books. One actually does need that support system. It's no substitute for doing anything, obviously. But it is a very good support system. And if we have bought or are buying or have at home any of the books that are on the teaching, they should never be read like we read an ordinary book. They are, so to say, um, school books. Now, if you remember your school years, very few people used to sit down and read their whole natural history book from beginning to end. In fact, they were glad if they didn't have to do that because they knew quite well they wouldn't be able to remember it anyway. What we did in school was we would read the chapter that we were on and try to remember that was the only thing that did any good because that's how we got our marks. <coughs> well, it's the same here. Read one page, 
one paragraph or one chapter. Whatever kind of memory retention capacity you have. And as you've read that, let's say, one page, take a piece of paper and put down in telegram style the essential message which is on that one page. Maybe it says to be mindful of the body. Well, write down mindfulness of the body. And then practice it. And when it becomes more of a habit and no longer a chore, next page. It's got to become a habit where the mind, of course, in between says, goodness, I forgot. That's all right. The minute we know we forgot, we're back to it. If you're curious to see what the whole book says, read the whole book. But don't think that's it and put it away on the bookshelf. It's a pity and it's a waste of time. Keep it there and read page by page with the telegram style notes of what needs to be done. Of course, you only need that telegram style note for a very short time because if you're practicing it, you'll never forget. What we actually do, we don't forget. What we know, we've mostly forgotten. If you think back at your school years, if I think back at my school years, I remember so little. It seems as if it was the whole thing was a waste of time. But it wasn't. Because we're training our minds, just like we're doing here. Only here, we're training our minds in a deeper sense. Not to know something, but to do it. And as we do it, it changes our inner being. As we become habitually mindful, there is an inner change going on, which we can't even explain very well, but which is noticeable and more peacefulness. So mindfulness is our daily companion. And we don't need a meditation course for that. We don't have to sit on a pillow for that. We don't have to be anywhere at all except where our life is taking us. Mindfulness, the four foundations. If you've forgotten... You can have the tapes and listen. They're mentioned in the books. Look them up. Say, oh yes. Body, feeling, mood, content of mind. And within content of mind fall the five hindrances. Mindfulness means paying attention to oneself. Knowing exactly. And if one knows exactly what's going on with oneself, that's recognition. And if it isn't suitable or appropriate or wholesome, we don't have to blame it, but we can change it. Mindfulness is an exactness of the mind. It pays 
real attention. And therefore, it is the best support system for meditation. Because the mind gets used to paying attention. Companion for mindfulness is clear comprehension. The two are very often mentioned together by the Buddha in many of his discourses because mindfulness as such is knowing only. It's knowing what we're doing. But the clear comprehension is a factor of the mind which discriminates. So it's an obvious companion to mindfulness but because the Buddha's teaching is analytical he puts the two apart and shows us that there are two things we need to do one is to pay attention and the other one is to know why we're doing what we're doing you see one can be a bank robber and be extremely mindful if one isn't the alarms will go off and the police will get one so that person may be very mindful but not discriminating clear comprehension has four steps and they are sometimes taken as a matter of course but very often not at all and then we get the idea when we do not take those steps that we have no control over what we're thinking or saying or doing but that's not so it's just that we haven't paid enough attention the first step of clear comprehension is to check the purpose the motivation, the intention. Why am I thinking what I'm thinking, saying or doing? Why? What for? What have I got in mind? What am I trying to accomplish with it? Am I just trying to pass the time? Or am I trying to support the ego? Or am I trying to show love? Or what is my motivation? Now, if we can ascertain that the motivation is a wholesome one, a helpful one, then the next question is, am I using the best possible means? Have I got the best possible means in mind to accomplish my purpose? All this takes place before we say or do anything. So obviously, it will slow us down which is only to be recommended. Impulsive and instinctive thinking and saying and doing can often be disastrous and can lead to a lot of um, aggravation and also to enmity. That does not mean that we lose on our spontaneity. It's just that we do not react impulsively if we react impulsively we can take it for granted that that reaction is based on either hate or greed 
So we need to consider motivation, first consideration. Second consideration, means. Are these the proper means? Now, if we say yes to both, then the next question is, are the purpose and the means within the Dhamma? In other words, would the Buddha have done it? very easy and uh, very effective if it isn't meaningful use any figure that you would relate to and say would that person have done it the means have to be as pure as a motive there is no um, excuse if the means are not pure they will soil the motive. If all three are positive, yes, this, this is a good purpose, these are proper means, and those are within the Dhamma teaching, then one goes ahead. And having finished with whatever it is, we check. Did I accomplish the purpose? And if not, why not? What went wrong? And it's an extremely interesting way of finding out where one has gone astray with the best purpose in mind. Maybe it was a wrong time, wrong timing. Or maybe the purpose wasn't as pure as one thought it was. Our motivations are usually compare to um, icebergs they float two-thirds under the water very difficult to see only one-third is above water so uh, to investigate our purpose that we have in mind is extremely helpful now that is called clear comprehension for everyday use Sampanyanya in Pali goes together with mindfulness and helps us to stay on an even keel, not to get carried away in either direction, carried away through um, dislike or to worry and restlessness, and not to be carried away through craving, but stay on an even keel. It's a first step to encourage equanimity because we feel at ease and we feel sure especially if we have checked the fourth one and the fourth one turned out yes I did accomplish my purpose so what I did was alright and the purpose seems to work out fine give self confidence self confidence is a very helpful and supportive mental formation because if there is no self-confidence or very little fear and anxiety become far too overwhelming to practice properly the other thing that we need to do in our daily life 
first, to meditate. Second, to have noble friends and noble conversations. Thirdly, mindfulness and clear comprehension. And besides that, maybe the support system of books, which we can study in the way I've said. But the other thing that is very important are our emotional foundations, which of course we also check through mindfulness. But as we have spoken about purification, you may remember that without that, nothing at all happens on the spiritual path, which is really the result always of the amount of purification which has taken place. So in our daily life, we have untold opportunities to practice impersonal, unconditional love and compassion. Impersonal means that we no longer just try to love those people that we are very closely connected to. Most people do try to do that. It doesn't always work out, but uh, it does work a good deal of the time, maybe. If it works a little more than 50% of the time, most people are already satisfied. But that isn't good enough for the spiritual path. First of all, the love and compassion for those people that we are closely connected with is always tinged with clinging to them and considering them mine. Intellectually, mentally, everybody knows that they don't own anybody. Emotionally, everybody thinks they're owning somebody. So, with that, we have to be very careful of our practice, which we can enhance when we remember that actually the Buddha enjoined us to love everybody exactly the same as we love our own children. Now, when we have children, it's very easy to find out the vast difference between how we are attached and care for our own children and how everybody else takes second, third, fourth, fifth place. If we haven't got any children, we may remember how our parents were concerned with us and how that was the main focus of love. It is far too limited to be sufficient on a spiritual path. We can use that loving feeling for the people who are part of our immediate surrounding as a seedbed 
to become acquainted with the feeling of love that we have for others. But we need to have that real intention and purpose to enlarge our scope of emotional giving in love and compassion and not to limit it to so few people. The more people we can love, the more love we have in our hearts. The more love we can give away, the more love we've got. Every person we meet is an exercise in love and compassion. We may not always pass the exam. That's all right. But as long as we know it's an exercise, it's an exercise in love and compassion. And if we don't pass that particular exam, we can be quite sure we're going to get the same one again. The person will have a different name, different hair color, maybe different sex, different age, but it's going to be exactly the same lesson. And if we have missed five or six times on this exam, it might come to our notice that we're getting the same one over and over again. The only possible way that there is peacefulness amongst people is to live together through loving relationships. There is no other way to be peaceful. The words are helpful. The feeling is the most important. And coming across people, everybody has that chance, probably every single day. There are people everywhere. And some of them we don't even pay any attention to. They seem to be sort of like the backdrop. They, uh, um, as if there was a stage on which we are the actor, and then there's a backdrop, and there's some people walking back and forth. Well, these people have as much dukkha as we have, would like to be loved as much as we do, and we can become aware of anyone at any time to practice. In the beginning, when we do that, the practice may seem mental. That's all right. Our thoughts are sense contacts, and all sense contacts produce feelings. So if we think in that way and don't feel a thing, eventually the feeling will follow. This is part of our daily practice. And practice, as you can see, meditation is only one small part of that. The day has 24 hours, and we might sleep seven. 
that leaves us with 17 hours. Then we might meditate the best possible way, two hours. That leaves us with 15 hours. And then if we forget the whole thing for 15 hours, how do we expect, first of all, to meditate? And how do we expect purification? And how do we expect to recognize what is spiritual life? 15 hours a day, we have the opportunity to remember. And the remembrance is mindfulness, clear comprehension, and the emotions, wholesome, loving emotions towards others. The wholesome and loving emotions towards others is the same as the thought process that we recognize through mindfulness that we can change. And I'd like to remind you once more that it is difficult to substitute with the opposite. It's something that one has to learn. But it is possible to take that intermediary step to get away from the uh, restlessness, the worry, the dislike by thinking of something that's uplifting, that soothes the mind, gets it away from its unpleasant ideas, which, if we stay with them, can become so embedded that they will be the first thing that come to mind every time there's something that we need to attend to. So the intermediate step, taking the mind away, not only as an antidote for our hindrances, but also as one of the great blessings. There's a discourse by the Buddha of the great blessings, the Mahamangala Sutta, and having wise and noble friends is a great blessing, one of 38 great blessings. That doesn't mean that when we come home now, we look around to see what friends we've got and then maybe ring them up and say, well, look, you know, uh, you're not uh, uh, noble enough. <laughs> and then we have an enemy instead of a friend. And that will not be useful. We can be the noble friend. And this is something that we have already uh, spoken about. If people now, when you come home, ask you what you've been doing, do answer them truthfully, faithfully, with whatever, whatever it is that you think you've been doing. And, uh, <laughs> and watch them closely. See how far they'll go along with you. If you come to a point where it's quite obvious that they've had enough, stop. The Buddha was against all missionary activity. New brooms sweep well. Never mind. It's not important. 
anybody who has a karma, the resultants of karma, that take them to meditation courses or to the teaching of the Buddha will go there. Naturally, if they ask, yes, do tell. And if they actually go as far as saying, show me. Loving kindness meditation, you can tell to anyone. Or even give them a gift of a tape with that on, or explain it, or whatever you like to do. It's, you can never go wrong with that. You can hardly ever go wrong with attention on the breath if somebody is really wanting to know. But primarily, tell them about loving-kindness meditation. If they want to know, don't corner them and say, look, there's something important I've got to tell you. And especially not your parents. <laughs> hmm? If they want to know, they'll ask. And if they don't ask, never mind. So one has to be discriminating there. It's, it can only lead to argumentation if one doesn't watch that. And argumentation about spiritual matters is very detrimental because oneself starts then doubting. Did I really do that? Did I really experience that? That's funny. I haven't experienced it today. <laughs> and then the whole thing falls apart for oneself. And so it's very helpful to check one's motivation also. You see, it's a very common human uh, nature that if we think something is good, we'd like others to join that because it supports our belief. We don't have to believe a thing in the Buddha's discourse or the Buddha's teaching. In fact, he said not to believe anything. All we can do is try it out and see if it works. And if we try it out and it works, then we don't have to believe a thing and we don't really need the support from other people. But it's a very um, typically human way of wanting people to join one. Here in Germany, it's almost a fad. Societies and Vereine uh, and everything where you can join. So um, it's... Um, it's not necessary. Nobody needs to join us. All we need to do is do it. Now, if at home there is someone who isn't really all that taken with what we're doing, the best thing is personal example. And not in the spirit of, well, I'm going to show him or her. <laughs> not like that. But through one's own purification, a change takes place. Can't be helped. If you've got some dirty towels and you put them in a washing machine, well, when they come out and the washing machine did work, then they look different, don't they? And uh, it's a different matter of using them, too. 
the same with us. And every time, if you're, for instance, somebody who cleans house or washes dishes or pulls weeds in a garden, remember, cleaning house is fine, but cleaning inner house is even better. Washing dishes is fine, but washing inside of me is even better. And pulling weeds in the garden, yes, of course, otherwise you have a jungle. But that jungle inside, we need to pull the weeds there. And actually, if we do pull the weeds, we may remember and maybe give, this is like a bit of a fun game, give each weed that we pull a name. Say, oh, well, you look like hate. And you look like resentment, and you look like worry, and you look like uh, envy, and you look like pride. And I'll pull you out by the root, because you have no place here in my beautiful flower garden. It's just a game, but it works. If we can look at ourselves with a bit of humor, and a bit of ease in the mind, it works much better than trying to push ourselves. Sure, we need self-discipline, but one needs self-discipline for anything one does. One needs self-discipline to get up in the morning, whatever it is. So, we do need that. But if we have a bit of an approach to the whole matter, which is very down to earth, and also a bit humorous, it's so much easier. Many things that we need to consider are embedded in the five precepts. And what I'd like to do right now, I'd like to explain the five precepts and taking refuge. And after I've explained it, We'll do it together. We'll take refuge and take the precepts, but only for those who want to do that. It's by no means compulsory or anything like that or obligatory. You can do whatever you like. After you've heard what they mean, you may decide that you don't want to do it. That's fine. These are just, it's just an offer. First, the refuge, taking refuge. We take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And Buddha in this case means enlightenment principle, which is always available and always around. The enlightenment principle in which we take refuge means that we know that it is within us and that it is the highest ideal and that one day we may actualize it. It's there as a seed within us and it may grow to full proportions if we look after it, care for it. And that we, taking refuge in it means that we know it's a safe place. And that safe place is within Finding refuge in the world, a safe place, it's impossible. 
there are no safe places. We think there are. But any house can topple. Any country can go into chaos. Any person can die. The Enlightenment principle doesn't do any of those. The Enlightenment principle is there. And also, if we give it our love and our commitment, then we can never be disappointed because it will never go away. It will never leave us. It will never change. It is as it is. Everything else that we like to hang on to can go away, can disappoint us, can leave and change. So here we have the first one. It's not the Buddha as a person. It's the, the word Buddha means enlightenment or the enlightened one, awakened one. Then we take refuge in the Dhamma. Now the word Dhamma means truth, absolute truth, law of nature, the teaching of the Buddha. And what we take refuge in there is that it is showing us the way to actualize the enlightenment seed within us. Again, we can't be disappointed because anything that we expect of it, it will do if we ourselves are doing it. The Dhamma is within. We have the guidance of the Buddha's words that he to uh, called himself only the sure of the way. It's all within us. And as it is within us, all we need to know is recognition of it. And the more we purify, the more recognition, the more safety, the more security, the more refuge. We're not looking for outside refuge. We're looking for inside refuge. And within, there is that safety if there are no obstructions and no hindrances, no obstacles, there is safety. And the third thing we take refuge in is the Sangha. Now, the word Sangha has been uh, wrongly used in many places. Everybody who sits on a pillow is Sangha. Well, we can't take refuge in that, can we? What we take refuge in, as far as the Sangha is concerned, are those people who became enlightened and propagated the teaching so that we have it available. It is a matter of gratitude. We're grateful to them that they have over the years, over the centuries, constantly refurbished the teaching out of an enlightened heart and mind so that there's no question what we can do if we want to. And there's, there's this respect and gratitude. So if we want to take that refuge, it helps to be part of a vast community of people who have taken that refuge. That doesn't mean 
that that vast community of people can all actualize it. But they have at least the love and commitment for the personal purification and the inner realization of that which is the highest ideal. The Buddha did not call this Buddhism, by the way. That's a much later invention. He called it the Dhamma. We are calling it Buddhism, something at least many people do, uh, in order to distinguish it from others, which is all right. But it's again nothing but separation and distinction. Because the enlightenment principle as a seed is in every human heart and mind and the possibility of making it flourish where it becomes one's own experience is in every human heart and mind and the teaching is available to anyone who wants to hear it so having the that as in um, taking that refuge and being within a large community of people, very large, that also are practicing is another support system. It helps us to feel that what we're doing is not so different because when we go back to the world, and meet up with everyday kind of activities and people, we will most certainly become aware of the fact that most people aren't the least bit interested in what we've been doing here. As a matter of numbers, there are always some, and we find them in the oddest places. Together with that refuge, we take five precepts and they are worded I undertake the training to refrain from they are not worded you mustn't or you shall not or you, if you do there will be terrible consequences they are a training I undertake the training to refrain from and there are five things to refrain from for a harmonious and well-rounded human life in our everyday activities but besides refraining from these five things we commit ourselves to practicing the opposites so the first one is to refrain from killing living beings well any living being and the size of it it's up to each person to decide it just says living beings but what we do what we do as our training is loving kindness and compassion the opposite of killing living beings so we've already discussed that. 
But taking the precepts sort of um, brings it home and gives it substance because we say them out loud. It's a commitment. The second one is, I undertake the training to refrain from taking what wasn't given or what is not given. Well, it means stealing, but other than that, it also means that one is as careful of other people's property as one is of one's own, (coughs) or even more so, because one realizes that the other person's property may be dear to their hearts. But the opposite of that is generosity, giving. Instead of taking, giving. Now everybody's got something to give. We have, first of all, love and compassion that we can give. We have time. We have skills, abilities. We have material things. We have, some people have a lot of that a lot of material wealth, some people not so much. But giving means sharing. And it also means reducing egocentricity. Particularly if we give something away that we would rather keep. It's an extremely good exercise. And one day, there'll be nothing that we'd rather keep because we have realized that if I give it to somebody else it doesn't make any difference there is no differentiation, no boundaries so we take the precept undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given and also remember that I want to practice the opposite The third precept is, I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. And the opposite of that is being trustworthy, responsible, um, not only towards one's sexual partners, but also towards friends, teachers, students, all the people that one has any connection with. Um, relatives, parents, brothers, sisters, whoever comes into one's orbit, not because we cling, but because we have undertaken the commitment to be true to them and not fickle. And that's what that precept is all about. One time I explained it as not committing adultery and then nobody well half the people didn't know what adultery meant so we'll let that go if you do know what it means (laughs) take it if you don't (laughs) never mind but that's only in a sexual partnership if there isn't such a thing as if you don't have one we can still be very concerned about having our our relationships in harmony. And very often that 
is not only the love and compassion, but it's also taking responsibility, being trustworthy, and not promising what one can't keep, but being a person that one can rely on. And if we can be a person that can be relied upon, we have another feeling of safety and security within. The fourth precept is, I undertake the training to refrain from lying. Well, lying and wrong speech. Obviously, the opposite is to say the truth, which we have already been told when we were small children. But here it also entails to search for absolute truth within. Not take it for granted that that what we see, hear, taste, touch and smell and think is all there is. There's more. So if we want to be really truthful, there's two things. One is to search for absolute truth and the other one to be truthful about ourselves to ourselves, which might be even more difficult. That's not an easy undertaking. That particular uh, precept also contains uh, no idle chatter, no gossip, no backbiting. We don't particularly say that when we take the precept, but it, that's embedded in it. And the precept that gets most broken by wherever we are is idle chatter. Talking for talking's sake. Now, we haven't done that in this course, so this was uh, a novelty. But we'll certainly do it as soon as we finish here. <laughs> so look at it. The Buddha was quite adamant about that, that it takes a mind away from understanding what is important for it. Because it gets so busy. It's the cheapest entertainment there is. It usually doesn't cost a thing, but it costs us our concentration. And asking somebody how they feel, if we mean it, is not idle chatter. But talking about nothing which has any significance and does not include love and compassion, that's idle chatter. It's not easy to differentiate. And that's why this particular part of the precepts is the one that's most broken of anyone, any of the precepts. And um, if we have taken the precepts and then find after a day or two that we have broken one or the other, the only thing that we need to do is repeat it for ourselves out loud if we can. In other words, take it again. There's no need to feel guilty. There's no need to think that now that particular precept is out of our orbit. Just take it again. That's all. Search for truth. Be the truth. Even the enlightenment statement of the Buddha is called 
the Four Noble Truths. Truth has a very distinctive position in the Buddha's teaching and is always connected with looking for that which is far deeper than what we can see with our senses. And the last one is, I undertake the training to refrain from alcohol and drugs. Now, drugs means, of course, not medicinal drugs, which we need for our health, but it means the drugs that we might um, take in order to have mind-altering experiences. The reason for that is that both alcohol and drugs confuse the mind more than it is already, and the opposite of that is mindfulness. So our practice is always the opposite of the precept that we try to refrain from. And if we take the precepts, we at the same time commit ourselves to try and do as much of the opposite as we can. There is no perfectionism included. It's a practice part. And if we think we're perfect, We may be mistaken. We have a nice little saying in Buddha House, nobody is perfect and I'm nobody. (laughs) 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 But obviously, you can tell that that isn't meant like that. So, these are the uh, refuges and the precepts. And the way we do that is that I chant the refuge and precept in Pali, one by one. And then I repeat it in English. And then those of you who want to do it can repeat it after me in English. Don't have to learn Pali overnight. (laughs) And also what we do at that time while we're doing it, we hold the hands in Anjali, which means this hand position which means it's coming from my heart. (coughs) And again, there's no need to do it if you don't want to do it. It's entirely up to you. If you want to do it, that's fine. And I think maybe before we start, we'd like to stand up and stretch your legs. If you don't want to take the refuge in precepts, you can, while the others are saying them, wish them well and send your loving kindness to each one that is taking them to be able to have benefit from it or also to be able to feel that refuge and also to be able to keep the precepts and practice the opposite. Anything you want to do to have that feeling for the other people who are doing that. I'll first chant the Pali, then repeat it in English, and then you repeat the English after me. And we'll hold our hands in Anjali. 
बुधं सरनं गच्छामिं। I take refuge in the Buddha. Dhammang saranang gachami I take refuge in the Dhamma. Sanghang saranang gachami I take refuge in the Sangha. Jyotayampi Buddhang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Jyotayampi Dhammang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Jyotayampi Sanghang Saranangachami For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Tateyampi Buddhang Saranangachami For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. Hatiyampi Dhammang Saranangachami For the third time, I take refuge in the Dhamma. Hatiyampi Sanghang Saranangachami For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. Saranagamanang Sampunang Panatipata Veramanisi Kapadam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Adina dana veramani sika padam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking what is not given. Kame sumicha chara veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. Musavada Veramani Sika Padam Samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from lying and wrong speech. Sura Miriam Majapamadatana Veramani Sika 
Padam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from alcohol and drugs. Tisaranena sadhim panchasilam dhammam sadukam surakitam katva pamadena sampadeta. That means, may the taking of precepts and refuge be for your well-being and for your spiritual growth. We'll now do our last loving-kindness meditation together and the sharing of merits. And in order to start, we'll put our attention on the breath for just a moment. look into our own heart and see a shining jewel sparkling in all directions the seed of enlightenment within us and we love the person who is the carrier of this seed of enlightenment because this person called me has the greatest potential and we nourish that seed with love and look after it with care And we'll see that same seed of enlightenment in the heart of the person sitting nearest us. And we love that person as having the greatest potential, carrying that seed like a jewel within. And we commit ourselves to help bring the seed to flourishing through love and care for that person.
and we'll think of our parents whether they're still alive or not and we see quite clearly that they're carrying within their hearts the same seed of enlightenment like a sparkling jewel that's lighting up their hearts and we love them for that and commit ourselves to love and care for that seed within them to help make it grow just through our love we think of those people who are closest to us whom we may be living with and see that same sparkling jewel in their hearts and commit ourselves to love and care for these people because we know a seed needs love and care so that it can grow and mature. think of our friends, relatives, acquaintances and we can see quite clearly they're all carrying that same jewel, the seed of enlightenment within which can bring about the highest ideal, the greatest potential a human being has and we love them and know our togetherness, our sameness and give them our heart's content Now we'll think of all the people that we might meet very shortly. Part of our daily activities, part of our daily life, or those we might meet traveling, have met traveling, all the people we can think of that we may be making contact with or have made 
already contact with. And looking into their hearts, we see that shiny jewel sparkling, clear, the most valuable thing that exists in the universe, seed of enlightenment. And we can love them indiscriminately because all of them carry that within their hearts. And we know that only love can make that seed flourish. And now we'll think of a difficult person in our lives. And we can see quite clearly that that person too has that beautiful seed of enlightenment sparkling and shining within his or her heart. And we need not reject or resent that person at all, but embrace him or her because we're all one and the same and only love can bring about the greatest potential we all have. Now we think of all the people that we have ever met or seen or heard about or just know that they exist and recognize that they're carrying within their hearts exactly the same as we do. The sparkling jewel the greatest idea that which is goodness in itself and can never fail the seed for enlightenment and we can open our hearts and let love and compassion flow out of it to people everywhere those that are here whom we can see those further away in the villages towns and cities across the borders 